a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you've come here to engage in wrong think, pull up a chair. You found the right place. Make yourself comfortable. Can I get you something to drink? (laughs) Actually, uh, I'm I'm very happy that uh, you've tuned in today. If you're tuning in for the first time, first of all, thanks for giving this a chance. I understand there are a lot of voices out there and um, I don't know. I don't know that I'm so much, you know, portraying myself as yes, I'm the one true voice of, of reason and sanity. I'm just one voice among many that are out there trying to do the right thing. But I, I sincerely believe that we live in a time where it's getting harder and harder to speak the truth. In fact, I'm going to go into some detail on that in a few moments with a a, a commentary from Caitlin Johnstone. She makes a very very strong case that. Uh, propaganda actually limits our free speech even worse than censorship simply because you get so many people you know believing the wrong thing and actually enforcing wrong points of view on one another and it's it's just a great way to to keep everybody stuck exactly where they are so why do i speak up why do i stick my neck out why do i you know offer an opinion that really nobody has asked for it's because i believe that you have a purpose. In fact, I believe every single one of us has a distinct life mission that's ours, our very own. I believe it's divine in nature. Not everybody believes in God. That's okay. I'm not going to drag you kicking and screaming, you know, into, into the realm of faith. But I believe every one of us has the opportunity to change the world for the better in a way that we are uniquely suited to do so. In fact, I saw a great saying earlier today. Truth is, you had a purpose before anyone had an opinion. Finish your mission. And one of the ways you'll know that you are actually embarking on that sense of personal mission is you're going to get a lot of opinions. And and most of the initial ones you get will be, are you crazy? Are you serious? You want Why don't you just, you know, fall in line with the rest of society? Which really is the easiest thing to do. Now, look, I know a lot of us can look around and, and without even trying, I mean, you don't, it's not like you have to strain your eyes. Well, let's see, where is there a problem? Where is there some source of frustration or suffering, you know, going on in the world? It's there. It's, it's right there in our faces. But the, the problem that we have is, okay, so what should I do about it? And I hearken back to, you know, a question that Milton Meyer asked the German citizens that he interviewed following World War II and, and this is, by the way, not to say that we're slipping into, you know, the Fourth Reich here. I'm just saying they saw things coming apart in their society. And yes, there were some who went along with it, but there were also a lot who realized, whoa, this is not right. So now the question is, why didn't you say something or why didn't you take action sooner? And a surprising number of people said, well, you know, I, we all kind of knew something was off, but... We were waiting for the right time. We were waiting for, for the right time, the perfect plan, the, the big shock that would get everybody on the same page, where everybody would agree, yes, this, this is totally you know unacceptable. And the point that Milton Meyer came to was there never is a right time. 
and the great shock that's going to wake everybody up and, you know, get them, you know, thinking rationally, it never happens. So really, if, if, if there's a, a solution, if there's action to be taken, it's going to come down to the individual. This is where you and I come in. And that scares a lot of people. I think about Paul Rosenberg's uh, essay, the, the, time will ne- the Right Time Will Never Come. And he says, too many people, when they ask, well, okay, I see what's wrong, you know, then most people do, but what should I do? And he says, that's where the wheels fall off because the world's full of people who will tell you, all right, here's what you should do. I've carefully thought out these arguments as to why my plan is the right one and everybody else's is wrong. And of course, they'll encourage you to commit to them. They'll try to get to, they'll try to surround you with people who've already chosen their plan, the true believers. And if you join, you'll get lots of pats on the back and assurances that you're a good person. But the problem, he says, is all of those ways are wrong because they're just offering you fast, cheap self-esteem. Now, I know some people are already starting to squirm a little bit. Wait a minute, it sounds like you're, you're kind of getting after, you know, politics a bit here. Well, politics is a good example of fast, cheap self-esteem. It's a fast track to feeling useful, important, and wanted. All you have to do is join their very pleasant crowd and start chanting in unison. Here's the unpopular truth that not everybody wants to consider. There is no blueprint for freedom. There will be no great plan to follow. And people who say they have such a plan, while they may be well-meaning, bright, or even respectable, are actually moving in the wrong direction. And Paul Rosenberg says, look, I don't mean to criticize here. We've all made our mistakes. But the core of the issue is, if you want a world that is safe for individuals, we have to create it as individuals, not as groups. Okay, that collectivism really is the enemy that we're up against. It's collectivism that is trying to subvert the, uh, or subjugate the individual to whatever the crowd wants. I'm going to take a little detour here and, and just share an observation that, that uh, Andy Frizzella made on his podcast. And I think, he, I think he's dead on. I know there's a lot of interest, particularly on the political right, about uh, DeSantis versus Trump. And it's starting to get nasty. I mean, we're still a good year and a half out from the 2024 election, okay? The, the Republican nominee hasn't even come close to being chosen, but it's getting nasty. And the, the point that Andy Frizzella made was he says, if either of these guys, either you know Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, if they were serious about solving the problems that we face, they would find a way to come together and work together rather than sit there and tear each other down while portraying themselves as the one true solution. Now, again, I know I'm making some people uncomfortable by, by sharing that with you, but I think he's right. He's essentially what we have is a peeing contest between two politicians, each one seeing who can pee the furthest, and neither one seems that concerned with actually solving the problems because if they were, it would be less about them and more about here are the solutions. Now, I don't know if you heard my conversation with uh, Eric Peters yesterday, but Eric also made the observation that, you know, this is one of the reasons why he's actually taking a, a fairly serious look at Robert Kennedy Jr. And I know people, wow, he's a Democrat. He's a, you know, an environmental wacko, whatever. Look, if there's a candidate who isn't making it about themselves, but is making it about the issues, particularly if they've zeroed in on the real issues, maybe that's a more productive way to look at things. But 
I'm, I, I digress here because I don't want to give the impression that politics is the way it's going to get solved. The thing that has to happen is we have to be willing to act as individuals. I think Albert Schweitzer put it this way. The unnatural way of spreading ideas must be opposed by the natural one, which goes from man to man and relies solely on the truth of the thoughts and the hearer's receptiveness for new truth. So instead of waiting for someone else to bring you the perfect plan that will save you from responsibility or at least allow you to deflect the blame if, if we're found out to be wrong later on, you know, that's what keeps us motionless. That's what keeps us in servitude. That's the current condition of the world. If you hand your will over to the status quo, you're still standing still. You're not acting on your own judgment. And until you start acting on your own judgment, you are not going to move in a productive direction. Now, Paul Rosenberg gets right to it. He says, uh, I'm saying that you have to make your own decision all alone and you have to raise the courage to start acting upon it by yourself Without some leader telling you the best choice or some famous author guiding you or, or with some authority sanctifying the path for you. You have to choose all by yourself. And you'll have to face all the fears that hold you back from stepping out. You have to push past them. You have to make your own legs start walking. Now he anticipates someone saying, well, are you saying I should act without a plan? And he says, Yes. The issue here isn't following a plan. It's, it's dragging yourself out of stasis and taking some kind of initiative. And he says, unless you're making some kind of wild, violent choice, almost any choice you make is going to be a good one. The central necessity is to unfreeze yourself and start moving. Once you're in motion, then it's easy to correct your course. But if you never move, you just keep sliding down the majority's path, no matter how much you complain. And in truth, most of the good people in the world right now remain motionless. They complain about the abuses going on around them, but that's about it. So if you can get your mind around the idea that there's never going to be a perfect plan, there's never going to be a right time, and if you're waiting for them, you will wait forever. Pick a spot and start. It could be Bitcoin, homeschool, 3D printing, international communities, temporary autonomous zones, agorism, being a perpetual traveler, anything, something. Get moving. He says your central necessity is to face the fear and act anyway. Maybe keep in mind the question, who acts and who is acted upon? You want to be in that first uh, category. One who acts rather than just one who is acted upon. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to thank my sponsors very quickly as I move along here. By the way, today is the last day to take advantage of the uh, sale going on at ClimbingUpward.com. This would be my friend, Dr. John Pulver. Climbing Upward Music, you can save, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly... And he'll correct me if I'm not. Um, I think you can save 35% on your purchases by using the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E. So that's something worth considering. Also, thanks to TMCPNation.com, also Borelli.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. 
So let's talk a little bit about censorship and propaganda restricting speech. Caitlin Johnstone has a really great take on this. And she says the biggest impediment to free speech is people's belief that they have it. Not censorship, not refusal to platform critical voices, not the war on journalism. It's the fact that most people are propagandized into saying what the powerful want them to say, but they don't even know it. And what makes our dilemma so historically unique is that we live under an empire which makes extensive use of the post-Bernays, that's Edward Bernays, science of mass-scale psychological manipulation to trick its subjects into thinking or believing that they're thinking, speaking, and gathering information freely. And this is how our rulers suppress any revolution long before it starts, not by making people's lives better, nor by violent repression, but by manipulating people into thinking, well, there's nothing to revolt against, because they have no rulers and they're already free. By the way, the the version I hear of this most often is, we are the government. Really? (laughs) Are we? She says, in our civilization, most people are thinking, speaking, gathering information, working, shopping, moving, and voting exactly as our rulers want them to. Because these mass-scale psychological conditioning systems have been imposed to keep human behavior aligned with the empire. And she says, we're trained to believe that we're free while behaving exactly how our rulers want us to behave and to look down on other nations and shake our heads at how unfree their people are. She says, what the average mainstream partisan really means when they say they want free speech is they want to be able to regurgitate the power-serving narratives that were put in their minds by the powerful. That's not free speech. That's deeply enslaved speech, but they can't see it by design. And she says this problem can be addressed by simply bringing awareness to it every way that we can. Manipulation only works if you don't know what's happening, so drawing attention to it and describing how it, describing how it happens in as many ways possible, as possible rather helps people to start to see through it. Okay, that's actually one of the, that's one of the driving purposes of this show, is to help you see through the smokescreen. And to be able to to make those kinds of observations and recognize, hey, somebody's pulling my chain. By the way, I'm going to share with you an observation here. Um, I'm going to play a quick audio clip. I don't know exactly what the social media post was that uh, Anthony Bass from the Toronto Blue Jays posted. But apparently it landed him in some kind of hot water. And so he has been uh, called out. I assume by his organization or their corporate ownership, whatever it is. This is what a modern day struggle session sounds like. Here he is standing in front of the TV cameras. Listen to this apology. I recognize yesterday uh, I made a post that was hurtful to the pride community, which includes friends of mine and close family members of mine. And I am truly sorry for that. Um, I just spoke with my teammates and shared with them my actions yesterday. I apologize with them. And as of right now, I'm using the Blue Jays' resources to better educate myself, to make better decisions moving forward. Uh, the ballpark is for everybody. Uh, we include all fans at the ballpark, and we, and we want to welcome everybody. That's all I have to say. Wow. Wow. I mean, look, you know, and, and some people are criticizing him, and, you know, I, I think Matt Walsh was kind of piling on, this is what a coward looks like. Um, look, okay, he, he's definitely knuckling under. Anthony Bass is, is bending the knee, to the Maoist demons who are demanding that he, you know, struggle with his improprieties and his his uh, wrong think. I'm not sure that that's uh, 
the right way to to respond to people who are demanding that you you know repent for your wrong think. Now that doesn't mean you need to get uh, angry and violent and start lashing out in every direction, but you give them power over you when you apologize, when you confess your sins. Yes, I'm using the Blue Jays' resources, you know, to to adjust my thinking. I mean, he's he's basically saying I'm submitting to re-education. It, doesn't it kind of make you wonder what what kind of coercion was applied to this ball player? And I know we're right now we're we're on the eve of of kicking off Pride Month, and I'm sure it's going to be one for the record books. But do you remember a time when when baseball and football and other sports weren't about advancing someone's political agenda? They were about competition. They were about the entertainment that comes from watching world-class athletes do their thing. I mean, the, look, I, I, I'm not a big sports fan. I, don't, I couldn't tell you the last time I actually sat down and watched a game. It's, it's really been a long time. But stuff like this makes me think, oh, you know what? I'm probably on the right path here. Because I don't, I don't have the frustration with, oh, now my team's all draped in rainbow jerseys or, you know, whatever it is. But I do admit, I'm, I'm concerned when I see that uh, this, this is becoming, anytime you have people gathered, they must all bend the knee. They must all acknowledge the woke religion. And I think it is a religion and a very jealous one at that. It can tolerate no competition. It will have no other gods before it. And when it drags people like Anthony Bass out in front of the cameras to abase themselves and, and to, to apologize and, and, you know, confess their sins for the world. I don't know. That seems a lot like a religious fervor to me. I still believe that the best course of action is, look, treat people the way you would want to be treated. If you have a sense of humor, and I don't know, again, I don't know what he shared. I don't know what it was that, that set people off. But frankly, you have a group of people whose entire identity and, and life mission is founded upon seeking out the portrayal of oppression. I'm oppressed. You're the oppressor. Therefore, you must give me power over you. That sounds pretty self-serving. And once you recognize that's the dynamic under which they're operating, it becomes a lot easier to just say no. And I think we need to rediscover the power of that amazing two-letter word, no. Now, this may be one of those times where I think maybe Matt Walsh has has the right idea. Because he doesn't just say no, he says, hell no. I'm not going to go along with this. You guys can kick rocks. But you cannot surrender your conscience for the sake of acceptance or the sake of accolades or for that matter just uh, we'll we'll make your persecution a little bit lighter you know your evisceration will be a little more tolerable maybe we'll administer a local anesthetic if you will you know line up in front of the cameras here and confess your sins by thinking the wrong thoughts or speaking the wrong words i mean you do see the difference here right anthony bass was not uh, doing like so many of the wokesters do calling for the wholesale death or genocide of people based on skin color or some other immutable characteristic that they have no control over. But he's acting as if he did. He's apologizing as if he did. And I think the big mistake that a lot of people are going to make is, well, then I guess I just have to shut up and be really quiet and make sure that I never draw any attention to myself. And look, 
I'm not saying you want to go around drawing attention to yourself like a one-man band, but there comes a time where somebody has to have the courage to speak the truth. And if the truth is, I can't remember the name of the hockey player who did this. uh, uh, This was just a few weeks back. He said, look, I love my friends in the LGBT community, but I am a Christian. I believe that, uh, you know, there are certain standards that I need to uphold. And that's why I will not be donning the rainbow jersey when I take the ice. He says, I don't mean disrespect to anybody, but I have to be true to my conscience. I have to be true to God. That's going to come first. I thought it was beautifully worded, and and of course, people still freaked out. But there were other people who were like, "Hey, this is great." In fact, I think the uh, I think the the store for his team sold out of his uh, replica jerseys in short order just because people were inspired by what he did. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, it's it's bad enough that so much of our lives have become politicized. And by politicized, I mean that there seems to be this endless supply of people who believe that uh, political power should be the dynamic that drives every human interaction possible. From the products you buy, to where you shop, to what you drive, to what you're allowed to think, it's it's just ridiculous. And, and you know, I, I consider myself one of those radical voices pushing back against them, only radical because that's what they would call me. But we have a disconnect in terms of the traditional political spectrum that we're taught. In fact, there's a marvelous article from Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. It's titled, The Big Problem with the Traditional Political Spectrum that Children are Taught in Schools. And his point is, instead of deploying flawed and simplistic spectrum charts, let us judge political and economic systems by who they empower. Is it the state or is it the individual? Ooh, now we're getting on to something. Lawrence W. Reed says, in classes on government and political science, with few exceptions, students in both high school and college are taught what the so- that the so-called political spectrum or political economic spectrum looks like this. And this is the classic timeline with communism and socialism on the left, capitalism and fascism on the right. And of course, various mixtures of those things lie somewhere in between. Larry Reed says that's not only false and misleading, but it's also idiocy. He says, toss it into the trash and demand a refund from the teacher who presented it as as fact or as any kind of insightful educational tool. Lawrence Reed says at the very least... A spectrum that looks like that should raise some tough questions. Why should socialists and fascists be depicted as virtual opposites when they actually share so much in common, from their fundamental intellectual principles to their methods of implementation? He's got a good point. If a political spectrum is supposed to illustrate a range of relationships between the individual and the state, or the very size and scope of the state, then why are systems of big state, small individuals present at both ends of it? So on any other topic, the two ends of a spectrum would depict opposites. Let's say you want to illustrate a range for stupidity. So it would look like this. On the far left here, we've got extremely stupid. On the far right, they're extremely smart. By the way, don't read political, you know, uh, political meaning into that. But he says, how much sense would it make for extremely stupid to appear at both the far left and far right ends of the range? 
If it's a spectrum, the far ends should be opposite of each other. And for that matter, he says you'd only create confusion with a spectrum that looks like this. And here's one that has total government over on the left, some government in the middle, and total government on the right. Now, if you want to depict a range of options regarding the size of government, maybe the more meaningful one would be something like total government on one side, no government on the other. So he says, let's get back to that first sketch, though, the one that's presented most often to students as gospel. And it's a big reason why so many people think the communism of Lenin and Stalin was diametrically opposed to the fascism of Hitler and Mussolini, even if the people who lived under those systems couldn't really tell the difference. Larry Reed says, I must say that in the first place, I'm not a fan of spectrums as a device for understanding, especially when those who construct them insert terms along the range that are not at all compatible with what the range is supposed to depict. Capitalism, for example, is not a political system. It's an economic one, and it's entirely possible, though uncommon and ultimately unstable, for a one-party political monopoly to allow a considerable degree of economic freedom. But he says, my purpose here is to deal with the defective political economic spectrum that most students learn. So he says, my contention is that communism, socialism, fascism, and capitalism all appear on the same, if they're all on the same range line, it's terribly misleading and utterly useless to place the first two on the left and the second two on the right. In fact, he says the placement that makes the most sense would be this one. Communism at the far left, next to it, socialism, and then moving rightward, fascism, and then mixed economy, and then finally on the far right side, capitalism. Now he says the perspective represented here immediately arouses students arouses dispute rather because its implications are quite different from what students are typically taught. And the inevitable objections include three things. Number one, communism and fascism cannot be close together because communists and fascists fought each other bitterly. Hitler attacked Stalin, for example. This is equivalent to claiming Al Capone and Bugs Moran hated and fought each other so they can't both be considered gangsters. Or since Argentina and Brazil compete so fiercely in football, both teams cannot be composed of footballers. Larry Reed says both communism and fascism demonstrate in actual practice an extremely low regard for the lives and rights of their subject people. So why should anyone expect their practitioners to be nice to each other, especially when they're rivals for territory and influence on the world stage? He says we should remember that Hitler and Stalin were allies before they were enemies. They secretly agreed to carve up Poland in August 1939, leading directly to World War II. The fact that Hitler turned on Stalin two years later is nothing more than proof of the proverb, there's no honor among thieves. Thieves are still thieves, even if they steal from each other. Now, the second objection is that, well, under communism, as Karl Marx defined it, government withers away, so it cannot be aligned closely with socialism because socialism involves lots of government. Larry Reed's response is, well, Marx's conception of communism is worse than purely hypothetical. It's sheer lunacy. The idea that the absolutist despots of the all-powerful proletarian dictatorship would one day simply walk away from power has no precedent to point to, and no logic behind it. Even as a prophecy, it strains credulity to the breaking point. He says communism, in that last sketch where it's on the far far left, appears where it does because in actual practice, it's just a little more radical than the worst socialism. It's the difference between, say, the uh, 
murderous totalitarian, totalitarian Khmer Rouge of Cambodia and the socialism of Cuba's, uh, of Castro's Cuba. Third objection is that communism and fascism are radically different because in focus, one is internationalist and one is nationalist, as in Hitler's national socialism. Now, Larry reads his big deal. Again, chocolate and vanilla are two different flavors of ice cream, but they're both ice cream. Was it any consolation to the French or the Norwegians or the Poles that Hitler was a national socialist instead of an international socialist? Did it make any difference to the Ethiopians that Mussolini was an Italian nationalist instead of a Soviet internationalist? He says endless confusion persists in political analysis because of the false dichotomy that the conventional spectrum suggests. People are taught to think that fascists Mussolini and Hitler were polar opposites of communists Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. In fact, however, they were all peas in the same collectivist pod. They all claimed to be socialist. They all, st- they all sought to concentrate power in the state and to glorify the state. They all stomped on individuals who wanted nothing more than to pursue their own ambitions in peaceful commerce. They all denigrated private property, either by outright seizure or relegating it to serve the purposes of the state. But he says, don't take my word for it. Consider these remarks of the two principal fascist kingpins, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, and ask yourself, are these remarks materially different from what Lenin, Stalin, and Mao, or even Marx, believed or said? In a February 24, 1920 speech outlining the Nazi 25-point program, Hitler proclaimed the common good before the individual good. In a speech to Italy's uh, Chamber of Deputies, December 9, 1928, Mussolini declared, all within the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. To put it quite clearly, said Hitler in a 1931 interview with journalist Richard Breitling, a core program of his party was the nationalization of all public companies, or in other words, socialization, or what is known here as socialism, the principle of authority. The good of the community takes priority over that of the individual, but the state should retain control. Every owner should feel himself to be an agent of the state. It is his duty not to misuse his possessions to the detriment of the state or the interests of his fellow countrymen. That is the overriding point. The Third Reich will always retain the right to control property owners. Wow. How about Mussolini? This is what we propose now to the Treasury. Either the property owners expropriate themselves or we will summon the war, the masses of war veterans to march against these obstacles and overthrow them. Now, he goes on with a number of different quotes here, but the bottom line is, based on what they said and what they did, it's ludicrous to separate fascism from the left and make it out to be just a purified form of classical liberal capitalism. If you can insist on using that conventional spectrum, He says you're deceiving yourself as to the differences between communism and fascism. They both belong firmly on the socialist left. Actual differences amounted to minimalist window dressing. Even their primary implementers said so. So instead of deploying flawed and simplistic spectrum charts, he says, let us judge political and economic systems by who they empower, the state or the individual. That makes things a lot more clear. And he's right. It really is the state versus the people. And by that, I mean the individual. The collective versus the individual. I'm here to stand for the primacy of the individual and your individual rights and encourage you to claim them, use them, defend them against the collective.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Again, an invitation here to please sign up and... uh, and subscribe to my show notes. It's not going to cost you anything. I will ask for your email so I can send it directly to your inbox. That's all you're going to get, though. I won't be spamming you with great offers or one-of-a-kind, uh, you know, opportunities. Nope. Just uh, just the show notes on the days that I do the show, and that's uh, that's all I'm going to share. And I won't be sharing your information with anybody else either, so rest assured. All you have to do is go to thebrianhideshow.com, click on show notes down at the bottom of the page. It says subscribe. Drop me your email address. I'll take care of it from there. Two quick articles I'd like to touch on in the final segment today. Um, First one I want to touch touch on is from Jeff Thomas. This was published yesterday on LouRockwell.com. Viva la revolution! He talks about how in every country where a revolution has taken place, whether it be a soft revolution or a violent overthrow, those who are part of the winning team make a point of glorifying the revolution and all the good it has wrought. And for this reason, he says, the inhabitants of most countries where a revolution has taken place at some point in their history will believe that the revolution was positive. In countries where that revolution was opposed, people will most likely regard the revolution as negative. So as example, Frenchmen tend to praise their revolution of 1789 in which the aristocracy were overthrown. Since then, the emphasis has been on the little man. The little man would not only be treated equally to the aristocrat, he would receive preferential treatment. Not surprisingly, this devolved into the socialism that dominates France today. And in spite of the dysfunctionality of the French system, most Frenchmen fondly praise the revolution and the, quote, freedom it ostensibly uh, created rather for them. Then we have the Cuban Revolution of 1959. Its stated purpose was to overthrow the aristocratic barista regime and replace it with one that favored the campesinos. The aristocracy, aristocracy rather, was removed, and the ownership of most everything moved to the state. There is most certainly equality in Cuba today, albeit at a very low level, yet we're taught to regard the Cuban Revolution as having been destructive as it devolved into socialism. Although the current system is largely dysfunctional, the Cuban people, even today, speak of the freedom that the revolution created for them. So Jeff Thomas's point is, these two examples are similar, Yet Westerners are taught to regard the French government as an enlightened body of men and women who spend their waking hours legislating for ever-increased goodness for the French people. Yet we're equally taught to regard the Cuban government as tyrannical rulers lording over an oppressed people. Jeff Thomas says the perception of the results of the respective revolutions would seem to have little to do with the reason for the revolution, its immediate outcome, or its eventual outcome and have more to do with whether the leadership of a country is on our side or not. Those countries where the leaders align themselves with our own country are good and enlightened, while the leaders who do not align themselves with our country are tyrannical dictators. The true level of freedom for the people is not really at issue. So from here he takes a thumbnail view of revolutions, and the the premise behind the desire for the revolution is always the same, A segment of the population feels that the government and very possibly their cohorts have become oppressive and should be overthrown. Now, when the history is written by the victors, they'll endeavor to create the impression that the entire population rose up. But that's almost never the case. In fact, that never is the case. A dissatisfied minority succeeded in taking over. So what then of the majority? 
Well, Jeff Thomas says, prior to the revolution, they sat along the sidelines and tolerated whatever perceived injustices the former government imposed upon them. During the revolution, they often sat on the sidelines, hoping to have as little involvement as possible. And then after the revolution, they generally sat on the sidelines, hoping to benefit from the new regime, or at least to avoid being victimized. So in Russia in 1917... A relatively small number of people overthrew the aristocracy and then faced the problem of taking over. They had no experience in this, and they didn't know where to begin. Enter Leon Trotsky and Vladimir Lenin, who had little to do with the revolution itself, but, through funding from London and New York banks, were able to pay the Russian military and police to establish order to a cursory degree. Once this was achieved, they used the military and the police to establish order to a ruthless degree not exactly saving the little man from the oppression of the aristocracy. As Mr. Lenin himself said, one man with a gun can control 100 without one. In the aforementioned France of 1789, the aristocracy was overthrown by a relatively small number of revolutionaries. And again, the victors had no real experience in running a country. Enter Maximilien Robespierre, a lawyer with a flair for control and a contempt for the hoi polloi. However, he was good at rhetoric and the people cheered as he lopped off heads. This in spite of the fact that he most certainly did not deliver freedom to the French people, just the illusion of it. As he himself stated, the secret of freedom lies in educating people, whereas the secret of tyranny is in keeping them ignorant. And so it has gone. One revolution after another, whether it be a soft revolution or a violent one, it's generally followed by a disorganized and often violent period where commerce, social stability, and freedom suffer at the very least, for as long as it takes the new management to pull it all together, and in most cases long thereafter. From Juan Perón in Argentina, the Shah in Iran, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and countless others, revolution has meant diminished liberty and economic hard times. And in some cases, like Mao Zedong in China, Idi Amin Dada in Uganda, and Pol Pot in Cambodia, conditions worsened considerably after the revolution had, quote, freed the people sometimes for decades. So the lesson here is be careful what you wish for. The American Revolution notwithstanding, violent revolution almost never ends well. The odds are poor that you'll get a more just leader or the greater freedoms that the revolutionaries have promised. At the time, they says today, we're observing the deterioration of the world's most prominent capitalistic countries all at the same time. Each has devolved into a fascist state. Again, to quote Mr. Lenin, Fascism is capitalism in decline. Quite so, says Jeff Thomas. And like many Russians in the early days of the 20th century, we see an increasing number of citizens of the former free world realizing that the decline of their countries is baked in the cake, that things are not likely to improve in their lifetimes. So many people fantasize that a revolution of some sort will occur. They hope for a soft revolution. By the way, there's virtually no chance of that happening. Or a violent one possibly generated by the millions of gun owners across the country. Unfortunately, no amount of handguns and assault weapons will equal the government's arsenal of tanks, drones, chemical weapons, etc. A revolt could occur, and spontaneous nationwide guerrilla tactics could make it difficult to put down, but the likely outcome would be years of strife and bloodshed, followed by dramatically increased authoritarian rule. Not a very uh, happy prospect, right? A third option might be to accept that, yes, the decline into fascism is a dead end, but then, all, but then so in all likelihood, so is revolution. That being the case, those who see two possible negative outcomes and no positive one 
might take the simpler step of internationalizing, meaning moving to one of the many countries that are not presently on the ropes. I know some people are like, hey, man, but I'm an American and I'm always going to be an American and this is where I stand and fight. That's that's fine. I'm probably in that same camp. But I thought this was a very informative and nice historical snapshot of, you know, beware. The, the revolutionary fervor. I mean, the young, uh, the black clad uh, Antifa types out there, the little communist revolutionaries in our streets. They have no clue. They're going to be the first people up against the wall should their side prevail. They don't understand it. They're useful idiots. They're, they're just people who are easily manipulated into action and, and they have no idea that, that when their usefulness ends, so will their lives. Likewise, I would encourage, you know, those who, who think, well, you know, at some point we're going to rise up and we're going to take our country back. Without God's help, it's not going to happen, which means we should probably at least put some thought into, you know, in, in what ways are we right with our creator? This is something the founding generation figured out, and it actually worked for them. We're going to need to approach this with great caution, and I would, uh, I would also add with great humility, as they did might want to study their example. So, one final note here. This is an article from the Brownstone Institute from Trevor Tucker. And just uh, touching on, uh, I don't know if you, if you saw just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau up in Canada was talking about, oh, we didn't force anybody to do anything with the COVID mandates. We just gave them a, a nudge in the right direction. And uh, he says, this, the, Trevor Tucker says, you know, a threat is not an incentive. And he gives a great example of, of how, uh, you know, you have to have the ability to say no in order for it to be an actual choice. Two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, that was just a nudge. But the way they went about trying to flatten the curve, which lasted for a lot more than two weeks, yeah, that came down to compulsion. Just in case you hadn't caught on, I'm really against compulsion. For some reason, it doesn't sit well. And again, I would encourage this is the time to rediscover the power of that marvelous two-letter word, no, and to know when to say it and when to stand upon that word. By the way, I'm not implying that it's an easy thing to do. When your job is on the line or family relationships are on the line or your good name is on the line, that can be a real challenge. But it doesn't change the fact it's still the right thing to do. So find the courage and learn how to use that word. This is The Brian Hyde Show.